sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. First, we dive into the intricate world of mental neurological health. In today's episode, we're going to explore the enigmatic realms of schizophrenia and Lewy body dementia two conditions that challenge our understanding of the human mind. I want you to stick with us as we embark on this journey to unlock the healthcare of the mind, exploring the latest advancements and insights in these complex disorders. Let's give you a little bit of background on these. First of all, schizophrenia. It's characterized by hallucinations, delusions, and impaired cognitive function and it remains a puzzle for researchers and clinicians alike. Meanwhile, Lewy body dementia, often overshadowed by its more well-known counterparts like Alzheimer's disease, presents its own unique set of challenges with symptoms ranging from visual hallucinations to fluctuations in cognitive abilities. So through our interview with our guests on the front line, we aim to shed light on getting help for these lesser-known brain health conditions, schizophrenia and Lewy body dementia, uncovering potential links, treatment options, and coping strategies. So stay tuned and join us on this illuminating journey into the healthcare of the mind. We start first with Lewy body dementia, a condition that robbed us from talented luminaries, ranging from Robin Williams, to Golden Girls Estelle Getty, and much closer to home for me, my own father-in-law. Dr. Philip Tipton is a practicing neurologist who specializes in movement and behavioral neurology at Mayo Clinic in Florida here in Jacksonville. He's an expert in this condition, and we welcome him back to our show. Dr. Tipton, welcome. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. It's so good to have you back. I've given you a little bit in our intro about these conditions. Uh, so let me just start with the question that I often get. And I might add, the reason we're covering this as well is that we've had guests from our live show last year ask for this topic, and we've gotten emails and tweets asking for this topic. So something tells me it's reached a certain moment of interest with the audience. What's the the difference between Lewy body dementia versus other forms of dementia? What is this? Yeah, I think that that touches on a really good point that uh, I think to, to understand the difference between things like Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia, we need to understand what dementia is uh, in the first place. So dementia is really indicating a severity of cognitive impairment, but there are a, a litany of things that can cause dementia. Um, just like many things can cause a cough. It's a symptom, essentially. So you don't go to the doctor and say, I've got a cough. And they say, well, we know what you've got. You've got a cough. End of story. No, you need to know what causes it. And so Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause. But uh, Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia more specifically 
is, um, is the second most common cause of dementia. So there are some key differences. While both of them can uh, cause cognitive impairment, there are some key differences. I kind of like to think about it as if you took Alzheimer's disease and you took Parkinson's disease and right. sort of smashed them together, you get something that looks a little bit like Alzheimer's and a little bit like Parkinson's, but there are some key differences to help parse them apart. Why don't we do that? So since uh, there is so much overlap, help us differentiate those items as you just pointed out. Yeah, I think the cognitive piece is probably a good place to start. So when we think about cognitive impairment and say Alzheimer's disease, most most people will think about a memory issue. So someone's you know having more difficulties remembering X or Y, remembering their loved ones or forgetting appointments and that sort of thing. Whereas with Lewy body dementia, it's more of an issue of impaired attention. So maybe being able to maintain focus. Um, Disexecutive function. So executive function is more of our higher order decision making processing, our ability to plan events, our ability to maybe balance a checkbook, those types of things. And then also visual spatial processing is affected in dementia with Lewy bodies. So um, our ability to understand what we're perceiving uh, visually in our environment. So those things um, are you know, fundamentally different than the memory impairment that one might expect to see in typical Alzheimer's disease. But um, sometimes it can be difficult to parse those apart. For instance, with attention, um, if we're having a difficult time maintaining attention on what someone's saying, uh, we have a difficult time remembering it. But the problem isn't actually memory. It's more with attention and being able to, to uh, bring in the information that needs to be remembered. So from the cognitive side, that's where Alzheimer's and, and Lewy body dementia can get a little bit difficult to tease apart. But then um, the, the cognitive piece also helps to separate Lewy body dementia from Parkinson's disease. Okay. So Parkinson's disease, we right or wrong, we tend to refer to it as a movement disorder okay. um, because there are, are quite a few movement uh, aspects to it. And we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into those as well. But the key difference between Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia is when the cognitive impairment occurs. And so there is this thing called the one-year rule, and uh, some people agree with it, some people don't, but I think it's a way of conceptualizing that in Lewy body dementia, the predominant piece of the clinical symptomatology, at least early on, is cognitive impairment, whereas with Parkinson's disease, it's not. It's really more of the motor piece. Now, there can be some cognitive impairment that occurs later in Parkinson's disease, but it's, we're really talking about early on, the, the key piece here is the cognitive impairment. And so, as you can see, you, you know, you might understand from what I'm saying, it can get a little hairy when we're <laughs> yes. trying to differentiate these apart. But a big piece of it is being able to tell that story. You know, what has been the temporal profile? What's sort of been the timeline of of symptoms developing, how have they developed, how have they changed over time, and then you start to come up with this sort of flavor, if you will, that helps to differentiate Lewy body dementia from Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia from Parkinson's disease. That's very, very helpful uh, for, for us, uh, just to at least to begin that. Let me ask a, a quick follow-up, because someone out there now will have heard Parkinson's disease in this conversation, and they'll wonder, is my future then Lewy body dementia? Um, how do how does Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia connect, if at all? Yeah, they do. So Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia, we have to be really careful with our semantics here because they actually are important, are both what we call Lewy body diseases. Okay. So, um, so sometimes LBD can mean different things. So it's important to know what the D is that we're referring to. So Lewy body diseases are really referring to what we see under the microscope when we're okay. looking at someone's brain who has either Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia. And that's referring to the Lewy bodies. And these are accumulations of abnormally folded proteins that basically clump up like junk in your brain cells. And then over time, we'll call those, cause those brain cells to die or to degenerate. And so um, 
at their base, when you look under the microscope, they both have Lewy bodies. So they're both Lewy body diseases. But based on where those Lewy bodies are accumulating within the brain is going to dictate what those symptoms are and, and how things kind of play out over, over a long period of time. So if you look at this uh, whole picture, so I, I'm kind of now understanding there's, there's a few diseases that are all kind of have overlapping elements to them. Um, what's that? I know you just mentioned um, how Lewy body dementia starts, but what would be the easiest way to describe the symptoms that should have someone out there who's listening to this say, I need to see someone like you? Yep, that's a, that's a great question because um, if we think about dementia in general, uh, forgetting your keys or misplacing your cell phone doesn't necessarily mean that you're going down the track of dementia. And so there are some key things that you can look out for. One of the most, I think, unique aspects to the Lewy body diseases, you know, whether it's dementia with Lewy bodies or, or Parkinson's disease, is this thing called REM sleep behavior disorder or RBD for okay. short. So RBD is referencing what happens during a particular stage of sleep called REM sleep. That's okay. rapid eye movement. So just to, to back up a second for that. So REM sleep uh, is um, when we're dreaming. It's okay. the stage of sleep when we're dreaming. And all of our muscles are supposed to be paralyzed during dreams. kind of makes sense. Uh, you, if you're dreaming, you don't need to act out your dreams because you might hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. Um, so... In Lewy body diseases, again, Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies, that mechanism is messed up. Uh, and so you can actually act out your dreams. And Ooh. so that can look like punching or kicking or playing basketball. It's one of those things where when maybe the patient spouse sees them across the bed, they can look at them and say, oh, I can almost tell what they're dreaming because they are dreaming and they're acting out those dreams. So this is a particularly unique phenomenon and while uh, Lewy body diseases are not the only thing that can cause it, we will see this oftentimes many years before the emergence of cognitive symptoms or even Parkinsonism as well. And so it can be a red flag. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody with RBD goes on to develop these diseases. Right. In fact, sometimes it's an indicator that one has sleep apnea that's not being treated. So we have to look for those things as well. There are some medications that can cause this too. But if you're seeing that, it's at least worth having a discussion with your, your general practitioner about maybe are there some other warning signs happening that we need to dive deeper into. So what's the typical age group that we're worried about uh, when uh, they are the most likely group to have this condition? We tend to begin seeing symptoms usually around the sixth decade of life, so when people are in their 60s. Now, some of these non-motor, non-cognitive symptoms like REM sleep behavior disorder can occur earlier. In fact, somewhere around 10 to 15 percent of people, of, excuse me, I should say 10 to 15 percent of men around the age of 50 will already have that RBD. Um, wow. So this can be an early symptom. But when we're actually talking about the, the overall clinical picture that actually looks like what we would consider to be Lewy body dementia, um, we're typically talking about someone in their 60s or so. Got it. Is this something that's becoming more frequent? I think it. while it may be becoming more frequent, there are a few caveats to that. So one is this is a difficult disease to diagnose. Sure. And so underdiagnosing, overdiagnosing has certainly been an issue. We're getting better at diagnosing it more accurately. Uh, and so I think we're probably seeing a, a rise in the numbers because we are accurately diagnosing it more. Um but, but again, you know, it, it is not as common as Alzheimer's disease. And we know that Alzheimer's disease is on the rise because of the big risk factor. Unfortunately, one none of us can do anything about it's age. Okay. And so as our, our population is aging, which it is, we expect to see more dementia with Lewy bodies, more Alzheimer's disease. Got it. I brought up at the very top this issue of hallucinations because we're talking, we're going to be talking about schizophrenia later. And you brought up that, that a certain type of hallucinations occur in this condition as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So we've, we've touched on a few of what we kind of consider the, the hallmark features of Lewy body dementia. We've talked about the cognitive impairment. We've talked about the Parkinsonism. We've talked about the REM sleep behavior disorder. But another hallmark feature of uh, Lewy body dementia 
is visual hallucinations. So these are seeing things that aren't actually there. Um, so it could be seeing loved ones who have, have previously died. It could be seeing cats run across uh, the floor, seeing bugs on the floor, snakes in the drapes. Um, these are very common uh, in dementia with Lewy bodies or Lewy body dementia. It's a little different than what you might expect to see in something like schizophrenia. Now, while you can have visual hallucinations in schizophrenia, um, you may also have auditory hallucinations. So we're, you're also hearing things. You I might see. hear voices. That'd be pretty atypical, unusual to see something like that in, uh, in Lewy body dementia. So basically, it's only the visual symptoms. That's, that's the big thing that we're seeing in uh, Lewy body dementia. And again, these are formed visual hallucinations. So seeing well-formed images. Sometimes uh, you might have other neurological conditions where people are seeing things that aren't there. They might be visual distortions like wavy lines. Patients with migraines may have those, but this is a very different hallucination. These are formed visual hallucinations, um, uh, and, and that's a critical difference there. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, it's our Healthcare of the Mind show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tag me on X at jservan. I imagine that having visual hallucinations would be pretty distressing. Yes. I, what I tend to see more often than not is that the visual hallucinations are more distressing for the family members than the patient. Really? Uh, which gets to an important point on how, how do you manage the symptoms of someone with, uh, with Lewy body dementia. And uh, while the visual hallucinations are quite common, oftentimes they're not bothersome. And so huh. that uh, as, as physicians, uh, we should sort of have a, um, an easy hand when it comes to prescribing medications, which can be done for visual hallucinations. But again, if they're not bothering the patient, they're not bothering us. That, that's, that's fascinating. We have had so many headlines, and I might add a few shows devoted to what's going on in the world of Alzheimer's. There are dramatic new drugs. There's, there's just there's a whole new healthcare, if you will, of how to manage this. Is there something similar for the treatment and management of Lewy body dementia? Do we have amazing new infusional drugs that you know cost an arm and a leg? I might add, but but are out there. We don't yet have what we call disease-modifying therapies. So referring to the infusions with Alzheimer's disease, we do now have a drug that targets one of the underlying pathological mechanisms in Alzheimer's disease. That's the amyloid protein. In Lewy body uh, dementia, uh, we have those Lewy bodies in the brain. They're composed of a protein called synuclein. Uh, it's sort of the, the amyloid of Lewy body disease. Um, and we don't currently have a product that can clear those proteins, that can clear the Lewy bodies. So that means we don't actually have a disease-modifying therapy. However, there are active clinical trials going on. There are a few promising agents in uh, phase two clinical trials that are, quote-unquote, disease-modifying agents. And then there are also clinical trials looking at medications that can really target in specific symptoms that we're dealing with with dementia with Lewy bodies, um, such as gait or cognitive decline. Um, so all of those studies are underway. We don't have a blockbuster drug out like lecanemab in Alzheimer's disease, but we're hopeful. We know that Alzheimer's and conditions like that, they can, they can linger for, it seems like a decade or more. Um, how fast is the, I know everyone's different, is the average length of this condition and, and what's the outcome? So Lewy body dementia tends to be, tends to have a shorter disease duration than something like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. Um, depending on, like you said, everyone's different and depending on which research paper you decide to, to read and believe, uh, you're going to find different answers. Um, we tend to think uh, with Lewy body dementia, somewhere around five to 10 years from the time of diagnosis in terms of life expectancy. But again, everybody is different. Um, and there are things that we can, we can do to, to try to slow that process. Um, uh, but again, everyone is different. With regards to risk factors, um, is this a genetic thing? If, if you have a family member that has it, 
Are you more likely to have it? Uh, what are the risk factors other than age that people, I imagine, so that they can prevent it? There's not a clear genetic link to Lewy body dementia like there is in some forms of, say, Alzheimer's disease or some forms of Parkinson's disease. With that being said, if you have a family member who, who has had Lewy body dementia, it does increase your risk of developing it to some extent. And, and there's arguments of, of why that may be, but there isn't one single gene that we can say, if you've got that mutation, you're definitely going to get Lewy body dementia. Um, and so as far as being able to, to protect ourselves from it, there are general brain health kind of approaches, um, whether they're, they're diet. Um, um, and the big one is, is exercise. So when I think about exercise, I usually recommend it sort of in three, three parts. Okay. Um, so one is kind of cognitive exercise. So doing things that are maybe a little bit more challenging to you. So viewing the, the brain sort of like a muscle. Um, so, you know, if you, you go to the gym and let's say your, your arms are really jacked, but your legs are toothpicks, you know, you need to work on the legs. And right. so, you know, if you're a whiz with numbers, but not so good at crossword puzzles, well, maybe work on the crossword puzzles, that sort of thing. So that's the cognitive piece. There's social exercise too. So getting out and getting involved with other people, you know, being engaged in conversations, there's a lot of processing that has to happen in the background when we're talking with other people. Um, and so that can be good, as well as uh, helping to to stave off things like depression. And then the last piece, probably the biggest one, is the aerobic exercise. So getting that heart rate up into the working range, and I kind of classify it as, as anything that makes you hot, sweaty, and tired, but there is a working range for for heart rate. That seems to be, if there's such a thing, the secret sauce for slowing the rate of progression in not just Lewy body dementia, but other neurodegenerative diseases as well. How difficult is the diagnosis? If someone out there is listening to this and saying, is that me or is that a loved one? What exactly happens to get diagnosed? Is it a test? Is it what's done? So we we have many more tests at our disposal now to to try to nail down that diagnosis. But it is still challenging, um, as, as was probably clear from early in our interview. There's a lot of overlap with diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, even diseases like schizophrenia, too. Um, and so all of those things have to come into consideration when we're evaluating patients. If you take someone like Robin Williams, who, who really didn't have a, an accurate diagnosis while he was alive and it was diagnosed with, you know, pretty much everything we've already talked about on the show. Um, and so diagnosis is still an issue. However, um, getting evaluated begins with having a conversation with your, your primary care provider. Um, about maybe some concerns that you've seen, some of the things that we've talked about today, whether it's dream enactment behavior, or maybe some cognitive changes, or maybe some changes in your, your mobility. Um, maybe you're seeing some early signs of Parkinsonism. Um, and so from that conversation, then that individual will, will determine whether or not additional testing is needed or whether you need to meet with a specialist. And oftentimes nailing this diagnosis down does mean you need to meet with a specialist because there are a lot of nuances to it that, um, that we need to parse out. But we have imaging tests that can help us to understand whether or not we're dealing with a, a problem of, of certain systems within the brain. Um, and we now even have the ability to test for that synuclein that we were talking about earlier, that abnormal protein that's deposited in the brains of people with Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease. So these tools, while none of them are exactly specific for Lewy body dementia, they can help us to, to put things together and really come up with the, with the accurate answer. In our final moment, Dr. Tipton, uh, if someone is out there looking for resources, more information, uh, what's the best place on the web uh, or any other location that you would recommend that they visit so that they can get that extra information? There are many websites out there. I would encourage folks to go to uh, you know any kind of reputable academic institutions uh, website. Um, I'm obviously partial to the Mayo sure. Clinic. Um, but the National Institutes of Health has a good website. And then there's also the Lewy Body Disease Association, and that's lbda.org. Um, they have a lot of great resources, information about the, the disease, the diagnosis, and also support groups, getting plugged into support groups, which can be very, very helpful. Dr. Tipton, this has been so incredibly helpful. I want to thank you for coming in today and really helping to set the stage for us in understanding this condition 
as well as others. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we hope we have you come back for future shows as well. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Always good to see you. It's always good to see you too. We've been talking to Dr. Philip Tipton. He is a practicing neurologist, a specialist in movement and behavior neurology at Mayo Clinic in Florida. And we've been talking about Lewy body dementia. Up next, we turn our attention to schizophrenia after your weekly health headlines. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is what's health got to do with it. And I'm Dr. Joe Servin. Here are your weekly health headlines. COVID leads the news. Americans who test positive for the coronavirus no longer need to routinely stay home from work and school for five days under new proposed guidance planned by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The agency is loosening its COVID isolation recommendations for the first time since 2021 to align it with guidance on how to avoid transmitting flu and RSV, according to four agency officials and an expert familiar with the discussions. Biogen has made a significant decision regarding its Alzheimer's disease treatment. The drug maker has announced the discontinuation of all sales of Aduhelm and relinquished licensing rights for the medication. This move includes ending a post-approval study ordered by the FDA to assess its risks and benefits. Biogen's focus will now shift to Lakimbi, an Alzheimer's drug developed in collaboration with ASI and two experimental treatments targeting tau protein. This marks the culmination of a contentious saga surrounding Agilhelm, fast-tracked for approval in 2021, but met with controversy over its efficacy and safety. Additionally, a UNICEF report reveals concerning statistics about stillbirth rates in the U.S., highlighting minimal progress compared to other countries. ProPublica exposes systemic failures in addressing stillbirths including insufficient research and disparities. Meanwhile, Stanford University researchers identify a potential explanation for the higher prevalence of autoimmune diseases in women, implicating a molecule called Extast. On the pharmaceutical front, a Senate report criticizes Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and Merck for setting high drug prices in the U.S., the mortality rate from liver disease is also on the rise, attributed to increased heavy drinking during the pandemic. Lastly, vending machines in the United Kingdom are offering free self-test kits for sexually transmitted diseases, aiming to improve testing accessibility and combat stigma. Those are your weekly health headlines. Getting back to the healthcare of the mind, we now change our focus to schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is one of the top 15 leading causes of disability worldwide. And 90% of those living with schizophrenia will experience some kind of cognitive impairment. Now, these symptoms can include problems with attention, concentration, and memory. These symptoms are lesser known compared to more recognizable schizophrenia symptoms like hallucinations, delusions, and others. However, they still have a profound impact on those living with the condition. So today, we want to talk about schizophrenia. Joining us now is an esteemed guest expert, Christine Sackdallen, the U.S. head of mental health franchise at Beringer Ingelheim. She brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to our conversation. Now, recently, there's been a significant push for schizophrenia awareness, with events like the one organized in New York City in an apartment serving as a microcosm for a nationwide effort. This initiative aims to shed light on the daily challenges faced by individuals 
coping with schizophrenia, highlighting the profound impact it has on their lives and those around them. Ms. Dallin, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're about to have. Me too. Uh, let's start off with kind of setting the stage for our listeners. Um, can you just talk a little bit about schizophrenia? What are, what are the key symptoms and characteristics that people need to be aware of? Schizophrenia is a very serious mental illness, and most people uh, realize that there's a lot of psychosis involved. But really, what, if you think about the disease, there's three symptom domains. One is called positive symptoms, which is your psychosis and hallucinations. But what most people don't understand is that there's two other symptom domains. One is cognitive impairment, and the other one is negative symptoms. Cognitive impairment really shows up in ways that uh, doesn't allow for a person living with schizophrenia to thrive because they just can't have the brain function that somebody who doesn't have schizophrenia has. The second symptom domain is negative symptoms, and that is lack of socialization, lack of motivation. And again, it's an inability for somebody living with schizophrenia to be out there and living life to the fullest. What do you think, as you lay that out, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions surrounding schizophrenia? And how do those misconceptions contribute to stigma? That's a really great question. Unfortunately, many people who don't really know much about schizophrenia think that people who are living with this disease are violent or that they can't really function, or that they can't uh, be in society. Uh, Unfortunately, the stigma that continues to exist in our uh, world today is that many people living with schizophrenia either go to jail or they are stuck in a mental hospital. Uh, And these are just some of the misperceptions that we have in our world. Uh, And fortunately, there are many people who are able to uh, thrive you know, they're able to be highly functioning. And these are the types of people that I think we need to continue to highlight because we recognize that with the right diagnosis at the right time, with the right treatment, as well as the right support, that people living with schizophrenia can absolutely thrive. You had this very fascinating awareness event in New York City. Um, and, and this, uh, before we get into that, I mean, I, I guess I'd like to ask the question, how does schizophrenia then, the way you've kind of framed it, affect daily activities? Well, what I can tell you is that one of the reasons why Beringer Ingelheim has decided to enter this space is because there is such an unmet need in this space. There's not a lot of innovation. There's not a lot of focus of, uh, of uh, psychiatry in this area because it's very difficult to treat. And one of the things that we really believe is that, again, with the right treatments, with the right diagnosis uh, at the right time, that we're able to really make a difference. And the thing that we are aiming for is for this audience, right, for this society that we live in today um, will have less of the misperceptions. It'll have less stigma that'll, that we will be able to talk about it more as a society and that we're able to offer the right types of care uh, to people living with schizophrenia. So what was, uh, when you had this uh, event in... Uh, New York City. What was that? Because it sounded very, very interesting. I mean, we we weren't we're in in Florida here, but it sounded fascinating uh, in terms of what you all did. Thank you very much for that recognition. And basically, what it was was our desire and our aim to lift up the areas of negative symptoms and cognitive impairments. Again, one of the things that we realize is there there is lack of education. There's lack of awareness of the other symptom domains. And so part of what we wanted to do was challenge the community uh, 
and educate the community that even if a person living with schizophrenia seems to be stable in their psychosis, that we have to look beyond stable. And what we did was we really provided an installation, a real life installation of what a person's room might look like or what a person's living room might look like if they have these symptoms because they cannot function on a daily basis. They're not able to help themselves. They're not able to have, you know, very simple things in their daily life completed. And so what we did was we made it a real life example of what a room might look like or what a living room might look like. And so we invited patient advocacy groups. We invited uh, our, our key opinion leaders as well as just regular people to make sure that they understand that even if a person is now stable with psychosis, there are other symptoms that will not enable them to live a normal life. Uh, and so that was really part of what we wanted to do with uh, enhance the awareness, but also provide that deeper level of education. Can you give a visual for that? Was this, an, was this when, you, when they say it's a pop-up event, was it, where was this located? Was it in a museum? Was it in a building? How, how did it work? So essentially what we did was we rented out a space and we essentially made it look like somebody's living room or somebody's bedroom. And we made sure that when people walk through, it's sort of like a museum, right? And in the way that you would immerse yourself in a museum, we wanted the audience to be immersed in what it feels like and looks like uh, if you had schizophrenia. And so it was really based on the reality and the peace and insights that we have of real people living with schizophrenia. In fact, one of the, the realities that I live, live myself is um, my brother. You know, I take care of my brother along with my sister. My brother lived with schizophrenia. Oh, wow. And one of the things, yeah, one of the things that we did was we, we made it really look real, right? This is the reality of what it feels like it looks like. And so this building um, looked like it was somebody's house. And then there was a lot of educational journeys along the way so that we can also educate on the misperceptions that we talked about. We can also educate on how we can help patients and how we can challenge the community at large to make sure that we are looking beyond what we believe is stable today. You're, you're painting a picture, and I, I'm just curious, could you paint a visual picture? What would a room, a living room or bedroom of someone with these conditions, schizophrenia, look like? What, what, was, what was displayed, if you will? Or what should someone going through there likely have picked up? in terms of what they observed? So for example, in one living room, um, you would have uh, food all over the place. You would have uh, trash uh, just scattered. Um, it would not be tidy, you know, uh, similar in, in somebody's room. Uh, you would have a lot of things in it that probably is not even needed anymore. Uh, there would be, again, just very messy situations because they lack the motivation to clean up after themselves, right? They typically have, um, you know, the lack of motivation to make it look nice. And so really the visual of this is the reality that, you know, you and I who don't live with schizophrenia don't have, right? You know, we, we know how to clean up after ourselves and we know how to make our space tidy and organized. And the way that we did this was to make it, again, look like, the reality, which is it's very difficult for them to clean up after themselves. And I already mentioned my brother. It, it looks exactly what my brother's room or living room would look like unless we help him and uh, unless we, you know, encourage him to, you know, to do the cleanups himself. Why New York City out of curiosity? I guess that uh, you could have done it anywhere in America, but uh, why New York City as the kickoff location? I think the the reason behind it is we believe that, you know, first of all, New York City is, you know, is very busy, right? It's a very busy city and there's a lot of opportunities for us to have people walk from the streets to come into the, the immersion experience that we put together. 
But the other piece of it is we also have a lot of our, our key opinion leaders. We also have a lot of our patient advocacy group that, uh, that are in the area, you know, that we were able to invite. Uh, the other interesting part of it, and we didn't plan this, but uh, interestingly enough, that same day, yeah. the Mental Health Coalition also had their meeting in New York City. And the Mental Health Coalition was founded by Kenneth Cole. And so he had uh, Deepak Chopra. He had many um, celebrities and influentials for his meeting. And it was so interesting that we had a lot of the people from the Mental Health Coalition meeting also attend our, uh, uh, you know, our immersive experience. So I think it was a really um, important event for us to be able to put it in a city where we knew that we would have a lot of draw and attention uh, and really call for that sense of urgency to make sure that we, again, do something about uh, that education that is so lacking at the moment. Will, will this type of pop-up immersion experience go national? That's our intention. You know, we want to make sure that when we go to medical conferences, conferences, for example, that we have a, a similar installation, again, to educate the public, but more importantly, educate the psychiatry community and have that call to action to think about the other symptom domains of schizophrenia. Were you surprised by any of the reactions to the people who took it in um, that you just didn't anticipate? I don't know if I was surprised, but I would say that I was very encouraged and to some degree overwhelmed. We had people from the streets come in and they were so overwhelmed by it and so emotional. For example, we had this one, again, person come in and it just brought him back to a family member, I think it was his mother who was living with schizophrenia. And he saw, for example, aluminum over the window, right? Because again, there's a lot of um, psychosis, right? In, yeah. in schizophrenia patients. And so he was, he was very emotional and he just was brought back to the times when he was growing up and saw his mother live through schizophrenia. And then we also had patients themselves who were there. Uh, and remember, these are people who are thriving, right? These are patient advocates and patient influentials that we work with. And they themselves saw what it was like. And it was a reminder for them that, yeah, this is something that they're also dealing with, especially when they have their bad days. And I think that this was a reflection for themselves too, to make sure that they don't ignore these symptoms and that they actually do something about them. Because again, part of the education is even if you are stable in your psychosis, there are other symptoms that will not enable you to live a full life. And those are the things that we want to bring to light. I want to talk about now, I, I know I, by just as you've kind of mentioned with the care of, uh, of family members, I know this is personal for you, but I, I, you know, one of the things we cover on this show is, is the healthcare system. Now you are the U S head of the mental health, uh, franchise at, uh, at, at your company. Could you expound for our listeners? What does that mean? What, what does that mean in terms of responsibility in terms of, treatments and options that, that could come to help folks with schizophrenia? Thank you for that question. First of all, I am really honored and proud to be part of Boehringer Ingelheim because we do have a rich and robust pipeline in the area of mental health, in particular as we enter the space of schizophrenia first. So that's the first thing that I would say is that we're very, very, very fortunate that as a privately held company, we can be in this space for generations. You know, we don't think in quarters, you know, we think long-term, we think in generations. And so that's the first thing that I would say that I was very attracted to when I first uh, came into this role. The second thing is um, we now have the investment as well as the deep desire to really build out this capability. We are very new in this space. You know, Boehringer Engelheim is known for respiratory as right. well as cardiovascular conditions. So we're new in mental health. 
But again, we are here to stay. And so my job is to build this capability for the company to make sure that I bring in the right people, the right talent, the right capabilities and build that out so that we can launch in the spaces that I talked about. First, in schizophrenia, we also have a pipeline for a major depressive disorder, as well as other mental health conditions. One of the things that comes up a lot is the healthcare system. And we know when we have covered the mental health healthcare system, I mean, just to be put it bluntly, it's kind of a mess uh, just in terms of people getting access to it. I guess my question mm-hmm. is, uh, how does how does someone in your role and your company, how does it help connect people who are in need of your products get those products? I think you bring up a really, really good point. You know, the healthcare system in the U.S. is so fragmented, but in mental health, it's even more fragmented, especially because a lot of the the states have different policies, right? They have different funding. And part of what we can do as a company is establish coalition, because again, we can't do this alone, right? We want right. to have real good partnerships with patient advocacy. We want to be able to work with state legislation as well as policymakers to change policy where we can. For example, we have uh, in our pipeline a prescription digital therapeutic that we have partnered with a company called Click Therapeutics. And this prescription digital therapeutic is for people living with schizophrenia specifically who have negative symptoms. And so one of the things that we hope to do is expand access to care. You know, we we realize that there's not that many psychiatrists now, right? right. There, there's, right. There's, there's a shortage. And therefore, how do we think about bringing more solutions like this prescription digital therapeutic to a broader audience? So these are the types of things that we're looking at. We're also, like I said, thinking about being more precise in our therapies. And what that means is looking at areas that there might be huge unmet needs that nobody else is looking at. So instead of looking at major depression as an entirety, what are some of the symptomatology within major depressive disorders that we can target and be more precise in the way that we uh, conduct and execute our clinical trials? So these are the types of things that I think from a big picture perspective, you know, we're really trying to accomplish. And again, this is no small task. You know, we realize that these are big, big problems to solve for, but we are up for it as a company because we really believe in this space. And we, again, recognize that we can't do it alone. We do need those partners. We do need policy to, policies to change. Uh, but it really starts with the right motivation and the right approach to be able to do these things that we're just talking about. Let me just ask for one. When you mentioned in the pipeline, you have a, a digital therapy. Uh, what does that mean? So prescription digital therapeutic is um, something that is a software as a medical device. You know, it is not an app. Okay. You know, many people think that it is, but it is. Uh, something that goes through the FDA just like any other mode of therapy, but it is available or it can be available on somebody's phone, right? So when they download uh, the prescription digital therapeutic on their phone, they're able to then go through uh, an adaptive technology journey that enables somebody who has negative symptoms and schizophrenia um, really understand what are the ways, right, the practical ways that they can get out of those symptoms and really motivate them to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do before. And what's really nice about the adaptive technology is depending on how a person living with schizophrenia goes through that journey, it actually becomes more intelligent as they as they go through the journey. The technology becomes more intelligent. Wow. Um, And it really takes into account how a person living with schizophrenia answers questions and goes through the journey and it adapts to how they're doing it. That's fascinating. In our last question, uh, I know there'll be uh, folks out there listening. Maybe it's a family member like 
uh, like yourself who are looking at others uh, in their family and they they're maybe they're struggling with the condition what's the best advice you have for them in terms of getting help where to get that help uh, given how fragmented the mental health care system is I, I would say it starts with being very vigilant, right? It starts with that mindset that we cannot give up on these people living with schizophrenia. We cannot give up on our family members. And being vigilant really requires for someone like me, for example, as a family caregiver, to ask many questions and not to assume that I know the answers. Um, and. If someone who I'm asking doesn't know the answer, ask for somebody else who might. And it just, it, it keeps going, right? And making sure that we continue to have that vigilance and that persistence. I'm going to let that be our last word. Uh, Ms. Sackdallen, I, I want to just say thank you so very much uh, for joining us today and helping us highlight schizophrenia. Uh, and and the great work being done at Beringer uh, Ingelheim. We just really appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for uh, giving us your time and, today. And thank you so much, Dr. Servan, for all the things that you do and for inviting me here and listening to what we have to say. And I hope it does help many others as well. We really appreciate it. We have been talking to Christine Sackdallen. She is the U.S. Head of Mental Health Franchises at Beringer Ingelheim. And she's been talking to us about schizophrenia. Well, that's our program for today. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Quorum is our director. Next week's program is our monthly medical roundtable. And if you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tag me on X at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.